Brian. I'm one of the elders here, and it's my pleasure to bring the word to you this morning. I'm especially glad to be here this morning just because of schedule and travel. It's been a little while since I've been able to worship together with uh, the body here at Grace Fellowship, so it's great to be back this morning. Uh, Before we go along in our service, you're going to probably want um, an outline that uh, will help you follow along with the sermon. Dan has those in the back, so he'll be able to, to hand those to you if you need one. Um, He also probably has pens, and there are Bibles that are available in the back, too. And speaking of the the Bible passage, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14 this morning, so go ahead and open up to there. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find it on page 552. So as a bridge into our text this morning, I want to ask you to consider a question. The question is, what is the most valuable item that you've ever held in your hands that was yours to do with as you please. So it doesn't count like if you were have a job where you use expensive instruments or, or equipment uh, or anything like that, because what we're interested in here is what is it that's valuable to us such that we would commit our resources to owning it personally? What's the most valuable thing that you've ever held in your hands? For me, uh, the answer to that is probably my camera, um, because photography has long been a hobby of mine. It is connected with my work somewhat, and also the reason that that is true of me that answers that question is that my dad was very, very generous, and because he knew it was important to me, he lavished me with a camera that is beyond what I would have been able to get for myself. And um, so... That is an example of uh, how the fact that what, what we own that's valuable says something about what's important to us and what's valuable to us. And in fact, that, that item for me has become even more valuable uh, as a remembrance of my dad. Today we encounter a story where we see one woman's choice of what to do with the thing that was almost certainly the most valuable thing she possessed, probably far and away the most valuable thing she possessed. What she chose to do with it and why that was such a controversial choice. We'll see that one party called it a waste and scorned her and rebuked her for what she did. Another party called it a beautiful thing. So we'll see which side Jesus came down on that question. A hint, I'll just, I'm going to tell you what the main point of our sermon is. Jesus will welcome and bless those who reject the world's system of values and instead spend themselves in beautiful acts of devotion to him. That's what our story is going to be about today. So we're going to jump into the text. Before I actually read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 14, let's just take a second to look back to remember what's in chapter 13 because it helps us understand the setting for chapter 14. If you remember, chapter 13 is all about the signs of the coming of the kingdom, the final coming of Christ's kingdom. And of course, this kingdom is what we've been anticipating all the way through the book of Mark. This whole gospel is about the coming of this king and the coming of the kingdom. Chapter 13 talks in big sweeping terms, apocalyptic terms about the signs that the kingdom is imminent. 
As we read chapter 14, notice how there's a shift in language. And we go from a discussion of when will this kingdom come, and we don't know when the kingdom is coming precisely, to chapter 14 where we start talking about specific days, specific times, and specific events. So let's go ahead and read chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to you. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. On your outline, you'll see three sections that correspond to the sections of the text. And here we see another example, as we've seen earlier in the Gospel of Mark, how Mark has taken two stories took the first one, split it in half, and took the second one and shoved it right in the middle of the first one. So we have a story about the plan of the plot that's being devised against Jesus to arrest him and kill him. And we have this story of what this woman did in anointing Jesus. And Mark has put them together. So we'll look at that, the first section first. I've called it the latent plot, verses 1 and 2 call it the latent plot because it's a plot that they're talking about but haven't actually set in motion at this point in the story. So we saw in the preceding section, we mentioned chapter 13, we saw that this question of the coming kingdom is one that makes this issue of is Jesus getting along with the religious authorities a much bigger question. There's a lot more at stake here than just whether Jesus is getting along with the religious authorities. We've seen that Jesus is the coming king. And so far from it being just a question of whether one man is going to be uh, popular with those who are in authority, there's a lot more riding on it. There's, it's, in fact, a question of the fulfillment of this kingdom that's been promised. And as I noted before, this section begins with a shift from an explicitly unknown time frame that we don't know when the kingdom is coming to the narration of specific events that are going to lead to Jesus' death and resurrection. 
where Mark starts telling us in specific terms, it's now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Further setting the stage in just these couple of verses is we get a little bit of a window into the motivation of the chief priests and the scribes. We, we get to see a little bit of why they chose to do it the way they did. Because they've decided that Jesus is too much of a threat to, to their teaching and to the stability of the nation of Israel and that they need to get rid of him. It should strike us as an extraordinary thing that the religious leaders of Israel, those who are supposed to be the ones who instruct the people in how to obey God and how to walk with God in holiness, have decided as a matter of official policy that they're going to kill one of the more prominent teachers in Israel. And not only kill him as an authorized use of their authority for someone who's committing blasphemy, because we see the way they are making their plans shows their illegitimacy. They want to be able to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So consider it this way. If you, if you intend to do something that you believe is fully right and fully justified, do you try to hide you're doing that? You feel, feel like you can just go ahead and do it. You don't need to, to hide it from anybody else. But if you're doing something, perhaps, that you know is not the right thing to do, it's amazing how quickly we become aware. Does anyone see what I'm doing? Is anybody watching? And so the plans that the, the leaders are making now is a plan that they plan, they intend to carry out in secret. So they're looking for a way to arrest Jesus quietly. The thing that they really need is an inside man. Someone who can give them knowledge of Jesus' whereabouts other than when he's preaching in public in Jerusalem, and someone who might be able to identify him to them. That's what they're hoping for. We'll see what happens later. So that, that covers what we're going to say about the latent plot. It sets the stage, and it sets the tone for the story that's going to happen. If you remember, Jesus has begun telling his disciples that he is on the road to being killed, that the Son of Man is going to be killed, and then after three days rise again. Now we see that the leaders are actively pursuing this plan. And so as you read the story of what the specific things that happened in Bethany, remember, this is a man who is being pursued, who has a price on his head. And there's a real question of, is his kingdom ever going to come to fruition? Consider that as we look in the second section, a beautiful extravagance, verses 3 through 9. So the key action that happens in, in the story here, I'll, I'll just read it again from verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. That's the action that happens. Let's understand that because there's a few things that might be a little distant from our own experience so that we can better understand the significance of what's just happened here. So Mark tells us it's an ointment of pure nard. Nard was a fragrant ointment that was made from the roots of a plant that was not available in Israel. In fact, this plant grew in the Himalayas. 
the lowest altitude at which this plant would grow was 9,000 feet. And it, it grew up from there. This is a product, an item that was exceedingly precious because it was really hard to come by. In fact, the part of the protest, part of the condemnation that those who, who thought that the, the woman's action was wasteful, they put a price on it. They said, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Okay, so what does that mean? The denarius was the conventional wage that was paid for a day's labor. So 300 denarii is right about an entire year's income for a laborer. Now, even right there, we can see that this is a lavish thing that the woman's done. Because there's not really any of us who uh, take lightly spending an entire year's worth of income at one shot. Let's try to put it in a little bit more modern terms. Just as a simple way of translating into, into our money, I looked up what the average hourly wage is for a worker in the United States. And so in the private sector, the average wage across all industries is right about $25 an hour. If you multiply that out by 300 days of eight-hour days, that is $60,000. So a very rough way of translating. 300 denarii, think $60,000. Now, that gives you an idea for just how extravagant this was. I was trying to come up with a modern analog to this, a way that someone could do something that's quite so extravagant. Because part of the extravagance is just the nature of it, that this was this perfume was completely consumed in the pouring it on Jesus' head. A lot of the things that we buy that might be, we consider luxury items, maybe jewelry or, or luxury cars or things like that, you don't consume them completely the first time you enjoy them. And maybe you could enjoy some jewelry for a while, but you could always kind of back out and change your mind and sell it and get maybe most of the money back that you, that you originally spent. But here, it is completely consumed in her pouring it over Jesus' head. $60,000 gone all at once. The only analog I could think of would be a bottle of fine wine. Because a bottle might be very purchase, expensive to purchase if it's been aged for a long time, um, but could be gone all at once. But even there, I tried to think of the most extravagant example. So I went to the website of the Plaza Hotel in New York City probably one of the more extravagant places you could ever visit in our country. And I found the most expensive bottle of champagne that you could order if you went to the champagne bar at the Plaza Hotel. And in the section of their menu for exclusive vintages, so this is not even in the normal section of the menu, exclusive vintages, if you ordered a 40-year-old French champagne, that would set you back $3,500 or about 5% of the amount that we've translated to. This was an extravagant thing that the woman did for Jesus. And so, it's actually not too hard to understand the reaction of the onlookers, which we're told is, first of all, is indignant. It says, they were indignant 
They said to themselves, why was it wasted like that? It could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Let's consider this reaction just for a moment before we come back to considering the woman and what she has done. The onlookers, of course, we should remember, because this was a private dinner, this was not a public thing. We're not told, like we are at other times, that the scribes and the Pharisees were the guests at this meal. These are probably Jesus' disciples who were there. Not necessarily only the 12 apostles, perhaps of the larger group of disciples, but these are not sworn enemies of Jesus who uh, are making this assessment of what the woman's done. And in fact, their, their reaction, the fact that they point to the opportunity cost is that this could have been given to the poor, shows that there's at least some right thinking in their mind. You know, that is, it is a good thing to give the poor and to help them. God commands us to do that. But as it is, they, they did not see the value in what the woman did. And so they, they call it a waste. And they, it's not just things they're thinking. It says they actually scolded her. They rebuked her for what she did. So at this moment, I want, to, I want you to consider what would it have felt like for the woman at that moment? They, they are scolding her. She has taken something that was very precious. We're not told the details of how she acquired it. It's possible it was a family heirloom. Or it's possible she may have sold some property so to be able to acquire this very expensive perfume. But in either case, she was very invested in what she was doing for Jesus. And at the moment where we see the response from everyone else there, they're indignant and they're scolding her for what she's done. She has extended herself completely. And so far, what she's feeling is rejection. How do you think she felt? And further, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you had extended yourself in a very significant way to somebody and then been rejected? I imagine we've all felt that, at least in some way or another. Maybe not in quite the degree of concrete expenditure that this woman has. Uh, but perhaps in relationships or something else like that. We, we've all felt that feeling of extending ourselves, of putting everything on the line, and then of being rejected. I can think of uh, one example offhand. Uh, some friends of mine recently made the decision to, uh, they're relatively recent college graduates in, mid, in their mid-20s, uh, both of them have been working in good jobs since they graduated from college, making um, not, you know, extravagant kind of money, but making good money, um, both of them in their careers. They felt God's call into missions and have become full-time missionaries. And in this couple, her parents in particular are not approving of this choice. In fact, they have used the word waste. You've wasted your education, you're wasting your opportunities in your career, and now you're raising financial support for a job when you could have been working this 
um, successful career and making good money on your own. And so they felt some of this kind of feeling of, of extending themselves in what they understood as, as in faith, but, but feeling condemnation and rejection. So if you, can, if you can discern that feeling, let's look at how Jesus responds to it. Jesus' response. He says a few different things. First, the first thing Jesus says is, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? He comes to her defense. They are criticizing her and attacking her. Jesus, the one who's in the position of authority in this group, he steps in and defends her. And any of the scorn that was being heaped on her, he says basically, you know, bring that to me. Don't don't attack her. I'm going to defend her. He elaborates on this by saying, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done a beautiful thing. He reinterprets what she's doing. They condemned her because they saw primarily just the monetary value of that ointment that had just been poured out. But he saw what I think the woman had in mind. He saw how much it honored him that she would expend her treasure in such a way as that. Her choice demonstrates a confidence that Jesus is worth that kind of expenditure. That he's worth that kind of extravagance. That's something that the others there apparently hadn't quite realized. Also, her choice demonstrates a confidence that Jesus would accept her offering to him. She put it all on the line. You know, we think about making an offering to God. We tend not to think so much about will God accept this offering? But when you frame it in these concrete terms that you're actually physically and literally walking up to Jesus and pouring ointment on his head, which is probably not something she's in the practice of doing every day, pouring ointment on somebody's head, will he accept this? She was confident he would, and Jesus showed that he did. He went on to say, in addressing the criticism that everyone else lodged, that the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now, in this, Jesus is not denigrating serving the poor or taking care of the poor. He's also not making a cynical statement. You know, there's always going to be poor people with an implication of don't bother, you can't even help. The contrast Jesus is making is there is a unique opportunity with me right now. The opportunity to serve the poor is always there. And so he's praising the woman for seeing the unique opportunity that existed right at this moment. And what is that opportunity? Jesus points to that. And the next thing he says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And here is where we start to see the even larger significance of the woman's choice and of this gesture of anointing Jesus. Notice how the woman's coming to him to anoint him is a way that she is identifying with Jesus in his death. The decision to anoint Jesus like this 
doesn't make much sense apart from that context. And indeed, that's how Jesus explains what it is that she's done. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And here we see the praiseworthiness of what the woman's done because the disciples, including the apostles, who had been with Jesus, heard all of his teaching, including his explicit teaching, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and he will be killed, had still hadn't sunk in yet. But it's clear that the woman had understood this. Understood it well enough that she saw the need to identify with Jesus in his death. That she understood what kind of kingdom it was that Jesus was inaugurating. This is the only place in the Gospel of Mark where it speaks of somebody being physically anointed. Other than, other than the, the stated intent of the women who went to the tomb uh, on the resurrection day, that they were intending to anoint his body, this is the only place where we hear of a body being anointed. Perhaps you recall what the word Christ or Messiah means. This is the title that's given to Jesus. And when Peter makes his statement of faith, you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. That title, Christ or Messiah, same word, two different languages, it means anointed one. Now, probably most of the time when Jews at the time would have talked about the Messiah, the anointing they would have thought about would have been more along the lines of David's anointing. Remember King David? He was anointed as a sign of his coming kingdom. That you are the one God has chosen, and so Samuel anointed him. And indeed, Daniel or David did become king and ruled in a, and became one of the greatest kings of Israel. Here is Jesus anointed. But instead of being anointed by the, the most prominent priest in the nation of Israel, he's anointed by a woman who here isn't even named. And instead of being anointed as a precursor to taking up the throne and ruling in power, he's anointed as a precursor to his death. And this is the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And the woman's act is showing that she is on board with this kingdom. We'll consider a, a couple of lessons for us. Lessons for us. First, be encouraged by Jesus' defense of this woman. Be encouraged. We were thinking earlier of what is it like to be in that situation, having extended yourself, of having laid it all out, and then feeling rejected? What we see in this story is that the woman who laid it all out for Jesus, that he defended her and he accepted her. And this is not the only place in the scriptures where we receive this promise. Psalm 34 says, I sought the Lord. And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. So we've seen in this story that there is a big difference of opinion about what is valuable. And the world has a set of things that it considers to be valuable. We see also a lesson for us to measure that value in kingdom terms. Not in the world's terms. Because what does the world value? 
The world values personal success. It values independence. It values prestige and fame. God values love and self-sacrifice and humility. So you can see that God calls us to things that are going to be at odds with what the world values. And if you are striving to be faithful to, to Jesus and to follow him and to live for him, you're going to discern a calling to things that the world is going to consider foolish or wasteful. In fact, something that is a wise and prudent investment in God's kingdom is often going to be seen by the world as entirely wasteful. Like the example of my friends going to missions. There are other examples too. I want to give two, two examples. One is an application that I think speaks to a lot of us. A lot of us here are in the season of life where we have young children. And investing in young children is the kind of task that it's not that the world says it's unimportant, but it values other things more. And I know the feeling of when, when I'm helping my girls through the routines that we do every day and it seem to take a lot longer than they need to take. It, I'm tempted to think of what are the other things that I could be doing that might produce something that would be more valuable in the world's eyes. You know, accomplishing some work. And, so, and even with having the, the phone in my pocket, it's so tempting to be disengaged from them and engaged in other things. But just as a very accessible example, uh, that investing in love in children is one of those ways to honor Christ um, and to choose what he commends rather than what the world commends. One example I can think of that takes that same thing even further that is a clear case of something the world would say is a waste is um, some friends of mine and former members of this church, uh, Brian and Courtney C., who discerned the call to adopt children and, in fact, chose to adopt two children with special needs. That's an endeavor that has a great cost to them. And a payoff that the world would say is just not in keeping with how much it has cost them. And they have shared how people have either implicitly or even voiced their, their opinion that it's a waste why would, you, why would you spend yourself, your life, your time, your money, your opportunities in caring for these kids who, in the world's eyes, aren't, gonna, aren't going to amount to anything? But in God's eyes, are made in his image. And so even though it might be a case of something that would be considered wasteful and extravagant, it's something that, that honors Jesus and his command and it is a picture of what Jesus' real kingdom is going to look like. Because Jesus' kingdom will not be built on stock portfolios or um, large corporations or masterpieces of art, the things that might motivate us to accomplish and to achieve in the world's eyes. But it will be built on love and self-sacrifice. And at the core, it will honor Christ who gave his life so that we can have life in him. We're going to close by looking at a contrasting case. 
The last couple verses show a man who made a different choice. Judas, one of the twelve, chose to betray Jesus. And as we noted before, Mark, by his choice of putting these two stories together, wants to highlight the difference. To highlight the difference between following Jesus and being part of his kingdom and following the world's kingdom. I read a little while ago Psalm 34. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The promise that Jesus made, even in what he said in defending the woman, was that for all time, for as long as the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, people remember her and praise her for what she's done. Contrastingly, um, there was a curse given to Judas. Um, that Jesus said, uh, just in the next section that we'll read next, next time we look at Mark, is it is, would have been better for that man if he had not been born. We need to be careful in choosing sides. There's a difference in outcome. Um, and those who look to Christ will never be ashamed. If you invest your life in Jesus, you will never regret having done so. But that is absolutely not true if you choose not to invest in, in Jesus and in his kingdom. Let me pray for us, and we'll continue with our worship. God, thank you that you make a way for us that by your love and your sacrifice, that you steadfastly pursued the road to the cross, that you make it possible for us to be part of your kingdom. And that by surrendering our lives for your sake, we can be part of that kingdom because of what you've done. Help us, Lord, to trust in those promises. Help us in the opportunities we have to identify with you in your death, to love others, to sacrifice our priorities for you and for others. You would help us to do so in faith, knowing that there is a great reward waiting for us. Thank you that you were faithful and that you have accomplished these things. We pray this in Jesus' name.